The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Meyer. My guest for episode 58 is John Jughead Pearson. He became famous, or semi-famous as he likes to say, as a founding member and guitarist of the Chicago area band Screeching Weasel from 1986 to 2000. They were pioneers in the pop-punk genre with connections to Green Day. And you're right now hearing Talk To Me Summer from Screeching Weasel's album Anthem For A New Tomorrow from 1993. We're going to be talking about his subsequent work in the band, Even In Blackouts. We put out four albums between 2002 and 2009. We'll talk about Rapture in the Third Person from the last of these Thresholds from the Basement. And from that same album, Motives Misunderstood in the Key of C. And then looking back to 1,000 Stories from the Fall of the House of Even in 2006. And we'll conclude by listening to a brand new song, Reason by Even In Blackouts. For more information about John's music, his books, his theater troupe, check out johnjugheadpearson.com. For more information about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to sign up for a recurring donation. Well, that's very exciting that I caught you, not just an ex-musician who is now acting in the Japanese Harry Potter world, but that, that you are... <laughs> Full on actually creating again at this moment. Me and the guitarist get together fairly often, and we were very upset that I was going to go away without us having gotten together, the band. So we decided we were going to write songs in one day and then record them in one day, and that's what we did. So we got it out about five to six songs finished in that time. So. All right, so we'll hear one of those at the very end of this recording, but we're going to focus here on your uh, last two even in Blackout's album from 2006 and 2009, the 2009 one being Thresholds from the Basement. So set us up where you were at with the band at this point. I know the band had started. You are in Screeching Weasel for a long time, not as the primary songwriter, but it's establishing a significant part of the sound of the band as an electric pop punk band and the initial shift to even in blackouts was to the name itself even in blackouts is supposed to connote that there's no electricity involved so at least you were playing an acoustic guitar i know that liz was allowed to actually use a microphone and not a megaphone as the original plan was but then you had four albums plus an ep to evolve to get to thresholds this last album so what was going on here you're talking about specifically for thresholds yes because that's what we're going to hear the first two songs off of or the first two songs we're going to talk about will be off of that Yeah, great. Yes. I had set sort of an end date for the band because we were financially really bankrupt and we were living in different states by that time. And we didn't have a label. So our band was one of the first bands before any of the Patreon or any of that to actually ask our fans for money. (laughs) Because I had been studying uh, Marcel Duchamp and a lot of the art movements and they all had Patreons back then. So I came up with that idea that we would do one last hurrah actually build a studio in our basement based on the money that the fans gave and that they would be able to fly to Chicago and actually stay with us for a couple of days and see the process and we would do a couple living room shows. So we wrote all the songs gearing up for that sort of event 
So a lot of the songs were about me and Gub decided to write songs about thresholds or doorways, what it means to be in or outside of a door. And since we were doing it in the basement, that became part of the idea, too, because we were going to record it all in our, my basement. So that's better than Marshall Duchamp could offer. To his, his patrons come in and look, look at me with the urinal. Look, look, I'm, I'm making it art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, well, we trust you, Duchamp, but we don't understand you. <laughs> That's kind of how our fans are like, too. <laughs> we trust you, but we don't really understand you. So. <laughs> so set up the first song, Rapture in the Third Person, for the folks before we play it in full. One of the ideas with me and Gub being the predominant writers was that we would channel our families, too. That was one of the other ideas, because Doors had a lot to do with me about houses and a, you know, a home. And so this one was particularly about the conflict between my brother and my mom. And the topic I always think about a lot, because he, was, uh, he became born again, was sort of the problem child and became born again. And he said something to my mom that sort of I felt contradicted the whole idea of being a Christian. And he was sort of living in a contrary life at the time. We all go through hell, but that was his particular hell. But it was kind of taking my mom with them. So I, I don't usually do angry songs, but this, I allowed myself to write an angry song in response to that situation between him and my mom.
So I'm coming at this having just watched a whole bunch of your theater clips on your website. Oh, and yeah. That's kind of how I've been taking in this Even in Blackout stuff that originally years ago when you had sent me the link to your band, like, okay, it's a acoustic band. It's got a female singer. This is just, eh, all right, this kind of sounds like some... There's a lot of weird stuff going on here. And a lot of it, I at least in my head, is being connected very directly to the way that you write fiction, in particular, your sense of theater, that the arrangements are in a lot of places very choreographed, that it's very much like the screenwriter and the director, you know, pointing out you do this there. And, you know, whether it's a group effort or whether it's you, that's the effect is it's much less jammy sounding. And then also just the way the vocal persona is taking on a character, you know, it's not as vivid maybe as, well, as a typical theater production. I know some of your theater productions are quite abstract and <laughs> impressionistic. Say a little about sort of how your, about your songwriting approach in terms of putting the lyrics together and shaping them into what we see here. I'll go a little bit back beyond before this song. I never thought of myself as a songwriter. Like in Screeching Weasel, I was known for, I created a lot of the melodic parts, and that's what a lot of people know the band as, these sort of melodic solos. But I did not consider myself a writer, so I, I just never worked on that aspect. But then when I became a neo-futurist, which is a Chicago theater company, we write short plays, you know, like two-minute plays that are not just like sketches, they're actual thought out, almost like short novels. And then I was like, oh, well, I'm basically doing that already in these short plays, so I probably can write songs. I think you're right. I actually did initially come from them in a, a more of a theatrical point of view. And also, actually, even this weekend, I kept on referring to our lyrics as scripts, and the whole band was making fun of me that, <laughs> that I'm creating a theatrical experience instead of music. The guitar enters speaker right. <laughs> With Screeching Weasel, I was also... My role was to sit next to the engineer and talk about what was going to be left and right, what was going to be center. So I actually did do that in the studio. I talk about what's in right and what's left, you know, what answers left and answers right. With songs, I like experimenting with the, the point of view, like it's called third person. So it is playing with that sort of theatrical aspect, even a novelistic aspect. I'm always thinking about who's telling the story. Is it the first person, the second person, or is it viewed from the outside? And in this song, I wanted to get a little bit of all of those. It's also heavily influenced by Violent Femmes. I'm, just, I'm a huge Violent Femme fan, so the ideas of this sort of darker-toned lyrics come from my sort of love of that band. I think they're pretty theatrical, too. All their songs sort of have a storytelling element to them. Well, and they should learn some new chords from you. <laughs> Because there's obviously one of the other trajectories between your first album with Even in Blackouts and when you get to this point is this is chock full of little jazz chords and little, I would say, vaudevillian or something, but like the, the do -de -do -de, like the little lead guitar things that it's melodic, but it's also slightly goofy, slightly suggestive of some... I wrote for the beginning before the vocals really get going rawhide because it's got this, that rolling, rolling, roll, like that kind of boom, do, 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 do. Like it's the bass is not doing that exactly, but that's the kind of feel that it has. And then you spin off into these descending jazz chord things. Say a little more about your development of your chordal vocabulary and the kind of things you're throwing in there. I'm not a trained musician, so my learning of chords, well, that was one of the other reasons I started even Blackouts, because pretty much all we did in Weasel was two-finger bar chords, because that's what Ben knew, and he was the main writer. So this band, for me, was about, and why it's acoustic also, is because I wanted about to be able, everyone to hear all those different strings and notes. I'm still not consider myself trained. I would just look up chords in a chord book, and then 
try to write a song. So I don't even know the names of the chords that I'm using in that one. I was practicing my five finger picking and this chord that I use in the beginning of it. And then this sort of rhythm sort of came out. But the bass player, Phil, is responsible for having sort of a cowboy feel to the beginning. He sort of came up with the bass part over that. And then my intention on the later part you're talking about was sort of a blood, sweat, and tears influence from uh, And When I Die, which just sort of breaks down into this this sort of weird rhythm. I sort of play with that. And then my drummer is really good at following what I create. And he knows what it means. Like he knows the rhythms and what we're doing. And I never know, like seven, eight or five, four. I fall into those sometimes, I guess. But he understands that stuff. So he backs it up for me. Then once he finds that groove, I'm, I'm able to keep it better. So that song came out of a lot of that. It was, I mean, it started with me, but it really, all the intricate parts come down to the rest of the band shipping in there. And then about a minute in, you hit, I had written the glidey part. Like this, this doesn't have like verse, chorus. It's just got sections. You said lyrics came first on this, that you're trying to write lyrics that would capture this actual situation and then shove them into some kind of musical framework, right? It's not just the kind of song where you're strumming along and come up with lyrics to go over that. Right, that is correct. I often talk about that. Those are two forms that I think are used probably by all writers in some ways where you just sit there and write and sing and it kind of creates itself in the exact amount of time it takes like one inch equals one inch and then the, for me there are the ones where I, since I'm a writer first I spend a lot of time on these words and then I try to fit music to fit the way that I wrote it I like those structures because they tend to be outside of the box of the verse chorus verse chorus bridge sort of idea they're just harder to sell because they don't, they're not as catchy for people to you know catch on to and want to sing along to yeah so the place where it kind of opens up i would call it a chorus is about a minute in yeah when it gets to that i had wrote the gliding part that now we're, we're all smoothed out and this again has kind of that doo, 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 doo. it's not the rawhide thing but it's something in the same family <laughs> of that for me it's very that in part is influenced by like the feelies and those what i call driving bands so you know where it's music that you drive to yeah. it just as a groove and i wanted that feeling of the beginning of it being all tense and then like i talk about another song in this record you eventually just sort of ride out what's going you know the chaos of your family so i kind of wanted to give that feeling that we're it's just sort of riding it out dealing with the evils you know within the family element the drummer and the bass player came up with that more bringing it back to that beginning sort of cowboy sort of feel to it which i love well that was not my intention i just had this weird chord progression thing i would do <laughs> well and then having the combination of that cowboy sort of thing with the very choir-like sort of angelic vocal lines which is following what you're saying in the lyrics that it's the part about being saved i'll be lonely in heaven and she starts to sweep off into the atmosphere i don't know if i've heard that contrast before exactly there's lots of pictures of the band that I think represent where I go lyrically with me and Liz, where she's this beautiful figure in front of all these hairy, evil-looking guys, and it sort of comes out in the music, because I write this music for her, and she's got such an angelic voice that she's able to uh, to take it to places that I wouldn't even picture it having gone. Especially on that element, there's a couple other songs where I write the main melody, and then I allow her to sort of, since she was choir-raised, she was in the children's choir and, you know, played in front of the Pope in Rome and stuff like that. So she was able to fill in all the places where I couldn't musically think for it to go. So the line, the I'll be lonely in heaven, where she goes very high at first, and the word heaven in particular has this interesting dip out of the key. 
Was that the kind of thing she would come up with or is that dictated? Me on that part, I just had the basic, I always come up with a basic melody line and then she'll add the uh, flourishes on top of it. Like the whole song, I think she seems pretty much to how I wrote it. And then that ending part, she's allowed to go off and do what she does best. So she goes off and then you start layering. So you said that Gub is doing the rap here that I couldn't understand what was being said, but you sent me lyrics. Holy is the sinner, sacred is the stone, drinking bloody holy water and stumbling back home. And then is that you in the C section adding another layer, saying another prayer-like thing that I couldn't quite make out? Yeah, I added another part that's just straight right from the Bible. Speaking of like cowboy movies, this is that person you see that's roaming the streets in the middle of the night and drinking his fire water. All those cowboy movies to me, the Western still have like religious overtones tones to him so yeah. it always sort of rings true to me to have some sort of religious guy stumbling home like that you know having probably just killed somebody <laughs> but he's still you know he's still one of god's soldiers you know <laughs> So does the song actually stop at 2.15? Is this a new song? Is it? Are you saying Johnny's a fake? God is a fake. God is a fake. Okay, so that's this is part of the same song, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know it's part of the same track, but all right, and it's in the same tonal universe, but it really obviously adds a completely new dimension. That It's a huge band freak-out punk song. Yeah, basically it says your God is a fake. As a person in my life, I don't allow myself to go to that sort of angry place because I feel like if people want to believe in a God, that's their business. But I'd allow myself to go into that place where I was criticized the what I can do, you know, the hypocrisy of it. It definitely needed a really punky, unorganized sort of uh, Minutemen, Black Flag sort of feel for me for that ending part. And this was coming out of the personal expression there, right? So even if you normally would not in a song condemn religion or something, that this was a specific reaction to your brother having this God turn and sort of what that meant for the family dynamics or something, right? Specifically, it's all revolved around one statement that he had said to her, like, that he's going to be sad in heaven because we're not going to be there with him. And he's talking to my mom, who is like one of the biggest saints in the world. So it's sort of that hypocrisy of thinking that he can get away with stealing my mom's money and still be going to heaven. But we all, since we don't believe in the ways of Christ, you know, would go to hell. Didn't fill out uh, form 17B. Ah, <laughs> yeah. I really allowed myself. So they, they basically, even in the band, they put me in a room all by myself and I sort of just hashed that out. I didn't even know what rhythm I was going to be doing or anything. It was just me with my acoustic guitar and microphone live and they just filled in all of the other parts to whatever I did in that moment. With a click track though, right? <laughs> no, I didn't even have a click track either. Okay, because yeah, I guess it does change a little bit. Well, actually, Bice doesn't, we don't use click tracks. And yet you're doing your part first and that's solid enough. I guess that's been the, one of the distinctive, when you described yourself, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a rhythm guitarist. Well, rhythm guitar is usually the thing that the singer-songwriter who can't really play an instrument does, but your rhythm parts are just the heart of whatever band that you're in, that they're just super, super precise. So I guess that wouldn't surprise me that you're just doing a rhythm part and a drummer can just come along after without a click track and be able to pound something out without too many complaints. Well, I'm glad you say that, Mark, because I mean, I had always thought I was not a very good guitarist, but then I did realize... Once I started this band, because I wanted to work on rhythm, is that I did have a really good sense of rhythm and that all this downstroking work that I was so frustrating and weasel actually helped to solidify the really metronome sort of feel of what you can bring to a rhythm guitar if you want to. Then let it you know, free itself occasionally with the strumming patterns. So the punk background really sort of helped me 
create that whole feel. And then, yeah, and eventually got us away from using a click track. I think we used it sometimes, like on beginning parts to get us in right, you know, or get us out. But we definitely didn't use it on that. Let's move to our second song to get another thing on the table from this latest record, Motives Misunderstood in the Key of C. This one is another theme of side theme of this record, which was I just gotten out of a long term relationship and we were both very analytical people. And I thought it was really interesting to sort of analyze the idea of romance within the context of people that were very analytical. So this song is trying to touch on both of those, like how can someone be analytical and be romantic at the same time? And then also one of the ideas of this record was to write titles that none of us could ever remember. This one is kind of rememberable, but most of them are not. I basically asked our friend John Szymanski, who often fills in on guitar and does other parts, uh, what key I was doing this in. He said, oh, it's key of C, John. So I just added that to the title of the song.
All right, so you got it. Sounds like it's going to be a Metallica song or something to start off with, or this, or uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, or I don't, I don't know what. Then you're right into it. You had sent me a description of this, how this was kind of a combination of your two styles of writing that you had this chorus, this super catchy chorus, you know, the kind of thing you just come up with when you're strumming along first. But then you wrote the lyrics pretty much just the same as the last song. Now, it's interesting that you talk about how different it is to write music first and be coming up with lyrics that fit it and then write lyrics separate. Like when I write lyrics separate, maybe I even make them dumber rhythmically. I know they're going to go in music later, so I almost write them like I'm Dr. Seuss in terms of just like they have the correct number of lines. They've got the rhymes in the places. I don't know necessarily how fast they're going to be or how much I'm going to stretch them out. Yeah, so this is a little intimidating to me almost to have a text that's a poem. It's not a piece of prose. We're not paying attention to the rhyme scheme. We're just sketching this thing that is supposed to, in a compact way, distill a situation and emotion, something. I'll just go on a, a sidetrack a little here because I write full-length plays and I have a whole theater company too where I do that with. Yeah. But they used to always talk about how my scripts were rhythmical. I'm almost poetic, but I don't use rhymes much. So I sort of came natural to that. Whatever I have in me, I'll just look at a line and I'll repeat it over and over and over again. And whether it has a rhyme or not, it becomes very rhythmical in a way to me. So I don't really ever concentrate on the rhyming. Sometimes it happens on accident. So that's just a little back to that story. I don't even know if there's a rhyme in this one at all. (laughs) Well, and also just the choice of that you can be a little flowery in the wording, embarrassment and woe, which if you're doing that yourself, like if I'm going to sing that, it's going to have to have some kind of snarky edge to it or something. Because otherwise, like, really, I'm going to sing my embarrassment and woe in a very straight... No, I can't make that sound serious. But the fact that you're writing for another singer who's got this very theatrical thing about her voice, it seems like it makes that easier or something. It gives you more leeway. I think there's two things in that one, that particular line is, woe, I sort of made it as almost more of a sound than a word. So it kind of like leads in the next part. So I thought that would forgive it a bit. And also, since I'm writing about, I'm talking about it being two analytical people. I didn't mind it trying to be flowery. So the sappiness, I think, to me, fit in with it being two analytical people, you know, trying to be romantic. We talked of distance and indifference in the midst yeah. of dinners and holding hands. It's not what you would normally see in a lyric, that particular kind of phrasing. Sometimes I don't know. I just write what makes sense to me and what rhythmically makes sense to me. And it's based in complete truth. We did exactly that. But then you've got the, if I felt the chorus, which has a completely like, okay, this is a singable thing. Although then you sort of getting out of the chorus back to the verse, this, what would we do? Who is that little lilt? Is that again, a Liz injection or was that part of the conception? That was actually me. I wrote that, but it was written for me and her to do together because there's a lot of humor involved in our band too. And, and at least in the construction of stuff. And we used to do things like that, just go. So I just sort of built it into that line that we would do together. Is another thing that for some reason, having somebody else and a woman in particular do some of these gestures just gives one more latitude that when it's a dude singing, then you have to have a certain <laughs> level of, you know, it's my masculine self presentation that I'm putting forward. But no, it becomes a piece of theater if it's not you singing at all. And especially if it's somebody of a different gender. So you just, you're mixing things around a little bit. I purposely went from when I started the band, went, you know, we have a whiny, really guy singer. Ben Weasel is very much a guy. I purposely wanted a, a more angelic singer and looked for like a choir based singer. And then the others struggled for me and became a lot easier than I thought was to, I wanted to write songs for a woman 
But we ended up just writing songs that were honest. And Liz and I just decided it works whether it's a man or a woman. And she didn't even, when we did covers, she wouldn't change lyrics to like him instead of her. She would just do them the way they were written. And it became really natural that they worked together, that the masculine and the feminine worked really nicely. We didn't have to really change much at all. When it helps that she can do the choir thing, but then she can also blaze, like, you know, Alanis Morissette levels of anger or something at some of these points in here. That... <laughs> yeah, she's pretty great. She had to learn a lot of that. She was not uncomfortable belting a lot, and she's not punk at all. You know, I always call her the Julie Andrews of punk rock because she's more like Mary Poppins than she is <laughs> Axina. <laughs> Well, it seems like you had the formula pretty well down from the start. I mean, one of my favorite bands growing up was The Cars, and on your first EP, you have the version of It's All I Can Do that's just a little faster, and it's just in your face. And it's not quite punk. It's not growly. It's a neat balance. It seemed like she hit pretty early. An interesting thing about her is we didn't, I didn't know her at all, and I only auditioned two people, and she was the second, and it was pretty much a given. But she was in my friend's studio when I called him to try to find a female singer, and she was never in a band before. She was just visiting her friend in the studio and her friend couldn't hit the right notes. And my engineer friend, Master Genie, who does a lot of our records, was actually trying to feed him the notes. And then he heard behind him this woman outside doing the exact notes that this guy was trying to do. He made a mental note that this person could sing. She has perfect pitch. Immediately, she'll know exactly what notes you're doing. Well, should we move back in time slightly to our third song, 2006's Fall of the House of Even? Different album, different era, what was going on at this point, and say something about this song, which has a even a stronger country overtone right from the beginning, obviously. There's a lot to talk about with this, but I'll just try to do the shorthand version. I've always been fascinated with concept records, so that was always on my mind, that the more and more music got back into the idea of singles, I'm a very contrarian, so I moved more into the idea of doing concept records. So that was a given. The other one was that the band sort of erupted. Uh, and It was just me and Liz. And there were two brothers in the band beforehand, and they left. So it was just me and her. And then I actually went, instead of getting young kids, I went back and got people that I'm in stalwarts, people that have been around forever. Uh, and then I got uh, Philip and Gubb, who were in Weasel at different times. So the album is about the fall of one band, but trying to continue onwards. And then I had been also studying Edgar Allan Poe's Fall of the House of Usher, so I was very interested in the idea of that sort of gothic storytelling of a ghost that isn't a ghost, but is really more of a someone just wandering the house. <laughs> a lot of our records have this overtone of uh, ghosts, meaning the, the past, uh, or problems that you're not dealing with. And that really sort of resonates with me and uh, the history of the band and, uh, and trying to deal with anger of older situations and not remain angry. So this song is sort of uh, the, the beginning of that, the intro to that idea. It really sets it up of that there's this ghost visiting this person in bed. But whenever he, opens it, he or her opens their eyes, the ghost is gone. But they want to hear this ghost's horrible stories to relieve their own guilt and their own frustrations with life. And then they end up alone, basically, at the end of it, with just the, the voices of the ghost, you know. And we also, uh, me and Gubb started this, he liked the idea of the, the hand, of holding hands. So we sort of continued that theme throughout this whole record, too.
this actual banjo or is this just you on guitar well the story behind that is basically we started all acoustic and then we came to by the time we were in this part of the band every song had to have an acoustic element so what i did with this one is i said well i don't really want an acoustic guitar on this song so i just had the mic me playing the electric in the isolation booth so you're getting both the distorted and the jangly sound of me hitting an electric guitar string okay then it becomes what is it cow punk where you have a (laughs) <laughs> the spastic drums over the straight-ahead bass lines and the punkish guitars. Yeah, this was uh, exploring the staying on one chord. Because, I mean, what I realized is the punk has like three or four chords That's because that's all you need often. And then I went back and listened to a lot of bluegrass that they just hang on one chord. It's just that all the guitars are doing other scales and stuff over it. So this was all new and revolutionary to me. So that uh, idea of that was just that I would hang on that one chord as long as I could and get out as much vocals as I could on that over that and then be influenced by the bluegrass sort of feel to it. Sure. And so the chorus is just even stays in the same place and you just double the pace of the lyrics and add a parallel octave so that you, you, know, you have a different character to them. And there you're gone. And then you're back out into your verse without having to ever leave right exactly i'm glad you got that yeah that's exactly what it was about and then you know i put in that whatever you would call that that little jig that goes all the way down the neck back to the e <laughs> yeah 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 uh, 
I'm sure there's a technical name. We need to get a bluegrass person in or something to tell us. Yeah. <laughs> the rundown. Let's just call it a rundown. The funny thing is, you know, how the mainstream can affect us underground people, Mark, is that I watched the movie Songcatcher, which is a horrible movie, but I love the story of the woman who went up and found all the bluegrass music and then sort of took advantage of it and wrote it all into songbooks. So I really got influenced by the actual, but they have great music in that movie of actual bluegrass musicians. So... I just try to do my take of that. And it seemed to work with the theme pretty well, too, like death and the ghosts idea. Yeah, so when you're getting out of the first chorus, you've done your rundown, uh, and you're getting back into the verse, you've got these little breaks and stuff. So say a little more, again, is that as preconceived as it sounds, or is that something that is worked out with the band? The notes were all worked out by myself, but the way in which they fell in that pause was definitely the working of Philip, the bass player, and Gubb. They love little pause i do too i just i'm not really good at creating them so they came up with that great sort of dunno dunno which i love well and then you have at the end of the song you've got even i can imagine it being very difficult to teach that to people to new people in the band the end portion yeah actually i was surprised it was because you know i'm normally used to being a punk who you can you show someone three chords and that's that's when you're done they got it but they picked it up really quick some of my rhythms i guess are weird there's an extra note sort of at the end that then you would in that phrase yep. dunk to dunk to dunk 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 so my guitarist had to come up with a he, i think he said a bubble yum bubble gum yeah bubble yum bubble gum <laughs> that works <laughs> and then this one also shoots off into the sort of sky punk realm too and a little bit because i love doing that i love trying to shake it up within one song it sounds like really that's the whole chorus is this the rundown and the fast part no that you've got an actual chorus but it waits around for, till two minutes in and then you're it breaks to reggae a couple times during it that it's that articulate it doesn't just now we've opened and we have the happy part and we're just gonna like that gliding part in the earlier song we're just gonna you know carry you through the rest of the song with this no it's got this still very articulated thing that's only one line and now we're doing the reggae break and then the open thing again so again it's like you're frustrating the listeners they want to mosh they started to mosh oh now we're now we're stopped moshing yeah that's kind of why i I said in an interview the other day that i kind of wrote myself out of my own punk movement because that's sort of in my nature to be a little bit contrarian a little bit confusing to people but i still wanted to be really melodic and rhythmical that was sort of the challenge for me is i wanted to write music that was complicated but still sounded melodic sure that sort of little part was influenced by nofx who are friends of ours and friends of weasel they go off often into the sort of ska for a little bit of the reggae part then back into the thrashing i really like that that sort of element but i'm not a ska writer so i just wanted to try it out for a little bit well that's a good thing that that is on the plate of many a punk band because you need something to break up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the blast of consistent energy. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And it was my goal originally to get people moving. And I felt like I sort of failed with that with even a blackout. So I wanted people to be really moving to it. But I think my instincts below that or deeper than that are to have changes and rhythmical playing with different parts like that to makes it a little bit more difficult to move to if you don't know the song intimately yeah and say more about the construction of these lyrics i mean i see what the sort of story you're telling about the listening to the ghost stories and ending up alone i can see that how that unfolds in here and again you've got things like in my mind you see a pale hand tattered gray and silken shreds that if you were just doing the singer songwriter thing talking about silken shreds like somebody's going to beat on you but you've (laughs) got it presented in this you know kind of fast way with multiple parallel octave 
kind of spooky effect in the lyrics. So yeah, it works. It still sounds kind of punk. I never really worried. So I had been doing punk for already for 20 years. So I didn't really worry about, I never thought about it in terms of the span of trying to be punk. It was more about the energy. So I didn't care. To me, it's more about necessity. I was doing a record that was influenced by Edgar Allan Poe's Follow the House of Usher. There was no other choice. Another choice would be tattered gray and silken, you know, (laughs) like Vincent Price is doing it. But no, we're going to do the non-literal, you know, something that is more in line with the energy of what you are as a songwriter. I don't hear a lot of slow ballads here on any of these albums still. Well, this one has a couple gone and our cover of Tom Waits, A Little Trip to Heaven are very slow songs. But it seems like that is a less natural, I don't know, when you're strumming on your guitar, is there a lot of... Like if you ask Sting, why in in the police, why weren't any of your sort of slow ballads? That it took five albums to get to every breath you take or what? It was because typically bands, the drummer, like they don't want to play that. <laughs> they want to yeah. got your sound. It's catchy. It's fast. So to open up and do something touchy feely and and slow. But by this band, obviously that wasn't an issue, or was it? Was there still like a group sensibility that would push you that we got to keep the energy at a certain level or something? At the beginning of the band, they wanted it to be more consistently punk because they were younger kids that were inspired by a Screeching Weasel. And ultimately, that's why they left is because I was experimenting too much and they wanted to be more. They wanted us to play all the punk festivals. And I was like, I don't, you know, I'm not interested. So there was a push. I wasn't the push in that direction. Mine was just it had to be energetic. And I was a little afraid of space back then, a little afraid of pauses because I wasn't as confident about my rhythm to be able to get back in from a pause and stuff like that. And then I became more and more comfortable with that idea. And then when I started writing for Liz, then I was more likely to write something slower. So I read the entirety in preparation for this of your book, Weasels in a Box. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> you know, sort of an accounting, a little bit of an accounting of, if not your days in Screeching Weasel, then at least your impressions of your days in Screeching Weasel, how you felt about touring and the various band dynamics and, and some of the record deals and other opportunities that were being offered to you. And we see just very recurrent things in this of you writing this as somebody who was part of this punk movement and that was seminal among a certain focused crowd with certain focused expectations, which given that you were doing this theater stuff throughout that, it seems like that you were already quite a three-dimensional personality such that if the punk fans knew who you were, even at that point, they might not have liked... Are they going to be fans of your theater company, the Screeching Weasel fans? So that then getting into Even in Blackouts is kind of showing more of this full range of your personality and your intellectualism and things that would kind of alienate the average 15-year-old punk listener. Not trying to get you to just repeat the many uh, revelations about this in the book, but wanted to have a little back and forth with you about you know how this experience, this transition, kind of dealing with the specter of fame, that's a very recurrent thing in the book, I don't know, does a lot of this come up even in the songs that you've been writing since then, these things that are on your mind? Or did you kind of get most of that out in writing that book? No, I think the idea of semi-fame is what I call it, is plagued me at all time. It's like I'm, our band is one of the most influential, I'm not even like tooting my horn, we are known as one of the most influential pop-punk bands in history, one of the first. There was the Ramones, but they considered them rock and roll, and then it became, you know, then we sort of coined the term pop punk. But then again, on the average, most people don't, you know, someone on the street doesn't know who I am. But I constantly have friends who don't know the band who will like say to another friend, friend that I'm in was in Weasel, and they'll like freak out and they get so surprised. 
So I either have super, super, super fans or people just don't know who I am. So it, it lends a weird feeling to how I walk about the world. And it's the same with the, my company, the Neo-Futurists. We're actually uh, internationally known, this company. So I'm almost more recognized for that than Screeching Weasel. So it's just kind of weird being in this realm of being famous and not famous at the same time. I think me and Ben from Weasel handle it differently. His is to sort of seclude himself more and mine is to want to know these people more. So I tend to be more social. And I think that's what Even a Black House was about for me. It was, it was a band and a family and I wanted to play living rooms and get to know these fans and sort of break down that barrier. Well, and through the theater stuff, it's even more directly exposing that if you're sitting back as part of even in blackouts, you're part of a group, you're playing guitar, even if everybody knows you're kind of the band leader, there's just something quite a bit less intimate from standing behind a bunch of microphones to some of these things that I was looking on your website where it's you know just you, sometimes with words that you've written, sometimes with no words, acting out, you can see all the pores on your face and just the, you know, it's really quite exposed in a way that I don't know that I would feel comfortable with. I, I did plays as a kid and stuff, but like, I haven't really thought about, you know, putting yourself out in that direct kind of way like that. Yeah. Well, the neo-futurist movement is its own aesthetic. Like we go around the world and teach it because it's actually more tricky to write from your own life than you would think it would be because we don't play characters and we know the audience is there. So if they sneeze or react, we react back to them. But it's all scripted, so it's not improvised. So I think the Even a Blackout sort of was had been affected by, by that too, that approach. And the people in the band now are just so friendly that it really worked trying as much as you can to break down the audience and the performer as to what that means. There is always that difference. They are not you and you are not them. <laughs> it's all about the attempt to try to be break that down as much as you can. Yeah, well, that often just strikes me as absurd. Just any kind of performing situation, like, am I standing in front of you, all you, and expecting you to pay attention to me Am I really that more interesting than you? Or, you know, kind of what is the conceit that is going on here? Which, of course, is very much opened up in the average band gig where maybe people aren't really paying that much attention to you. They're at the coffee shop or at the bar talking to their friends. Like, you have to win them. That it's just this interesting, evolving social convention, which does in a lot of ways, reflect what people are expecting going in. Is this a band that they've always wanted to see, or is this just something they're stumbling across and they have no idea who you are, no idea what you've done in your past? Fundamentally changes the character of your relationship with the audience, depending on what their expectations are going in. It was a difficult transition for me from Weasel to Even in Blackouts, because in Weasel, I would still jump around, but I wasn't the main focus. Where in Even in Blackouts, when we first started, Liz was a little bit more timid. So I had to sort of be that forceful, charismatic front person to try to get the people interested enough to actually listen. It's hard. You know, when you're playing on a bill with five other bands, it's hard to get uh, people's attention. And I, I thought we did. You know, we did most we did better in Europe than we did in the States. They just seem more ready for a genre hopping band than here. Did you put puppets in the show or <laughs> any other of your th sort of theatrical tropes that you could, you know, let's stop between songs and have a little Zappa-esque skit or something? Or was it really just still getting out there, playing the songs? <laughs> well, I'm also like a pratfall comedian, too. So I would often just do crazy. I can do the splits really well, too. So I would just do bizarre stuff to get people's attention. And then, um, well, we actually, in Europe, we started the show, we gave into that sort of Mary Poppins thing. And I bought Liz a carpet bag. And she actually pulled all the instruments out of the carpet bag on stage. <laughs> she would build the band out of this big carpet bag that we got her. So it was it was pretty performative. I tried to convince I had had my uh, 
brother-in-law, who's a professional sometime juggler, be our percussionist for some shows. And we didn't get to the point of actually like do some knives between the songs <laughs> to, to kind of get people's interest. But there's a lot of discussion of that kind of thing. My name Jughead is was from the cartoon, but it stuck because I would juggle two in between shows. Yeah, I read about that. That's isn't that just for the drummer, though? Isn't the drummer supposed to be the one that has this, does his little stick tricks? And uh... I was always the weird one in that band. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, neat. Anything else we want to cover? Tell them about your recent book. The new one that I'm working on is called The Plight of the Lampoons. It sort of started originally. I have a friend, Dino Stamatopoulos, who is a creator of a couple of Comedy Central cartoon shows. And I originally designed it as this cartoon family in a real world. And you sort of discover why they're there over time. But I decided that it would be interesting to make it a novel. I like the idea of describing a cartoon instead of actually drawing one. So this novel is about a cartoon family that doesn't age and them sort of dealing with being immortal in a mortal world. And I'm writing it in re- not in real time, but in real book. It's actually I'm writing it in a single book, page by page, that you will see page by page in the actual novel. I'm not sure I understand. I bought a blank book and I'm writing it. Oh, I see. And I'm writing it. The novel will be a novel, handwritten. <laughs> and then I will, uh, What I don't know if I'm going to mass produce it that way. or Just, just... to raise your printing costs astronomically. <laughs> Or even the Kindle size or whatever you can. It's just images. Yeah, I know, I know. I don't do things easy. <laughs> but hopefully these songs for the even the blackouts are better than we thought. So we're actually shopping them around to maybe actually have a full length put out instead of they were gonna be added onto a box set of releasing re releasing all our music on Sounds Rad uh, records, but we might actually now pursue this as a separate record. So that's exciting. Yeah, so tell us about the the last thing they're going to hear, Reason. This is one of the brand new songs. It's very short, (laughs) but I thought it just really was a nice declarative sentence and quite different from some of the more novelistic bits that we've had before. You know, not a lot of words here, very screeching weasel-ish, but then it has this kind of queen-like harmony that is punctuating it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, Queen is a big influence on even on Blackouts. We just could never quite do it right, and I think I'm learning how to do it. I'm listening to their mixes better, whereas before I just didn't know how they did what they do. We were all really excited about us getting back together again because we're like a family that's been misplaced. So the idea of the song was really about what the band was about, was that I wanted everyone in from the top, everyone singing, everyone playing. And throughout the whole thing, that's, it would remain that way at that top energy level. And the, the song is basically just about a topic I like, which is what does reason mean and what's your reason for doing things or not doing things. So it's kind of like that whole idea of don't watch your life pass by. It's you know, the simple idea. Do something if you're going to do it or don't do it. Just get to it. <laughs> so that's what the song was about. And I think it, it'll probably start the record because that's exactly what we decided. Me and Gub were like, we love each other too much not to be doing stuff, so let's just do it. We only have two days. Well, we'll do it. So the song was representative of that feeling. Nice. Well, good luck to you on that record. And you're going back to Japan. People in the, the in Japan can come and see you in Harry Potter world, right? And it's all in Japanese. I had to learn Japanese to do that too, so... That's the part I didn't realize. I thought it was just a cultural imperialist. Uh, no. <laughs> they'll speak English. Enough of them will speak English. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that means uh, 
the Ollivander wands all have a different core, magical core. Wow, okay. I thought you were saying <laughs> insulting about my particular wand and how they use the, <laughs> yes. the core of a real asshole. No, that the that, those are jokes that we often make some uh, <laughs> the wizards make amongst themselves. <laughs> all right. Well, here's reason. Thanks so much, John. And thank you, Mark. It's great to be on the show. I, I really love your work. Thanks again so much to John. I actually met John because he emailed me after listening to the Partially Examined Life, my philosophy podcast, and he sent me an e-copy of his book, The Last Temptation of Clarence Oddbody, and then he was nice enough to play guitar on one of my songs, released on the Songs from the Partially Examined Life album, and then I started listening to his podcast, Jughead's Basement, which taught me about the feelies, and he hooked me up with Dr. Frank. And really, through all of this, I was not aware of exactly what a sort of legendary figure in the history of music I was talking to. But having since looked at the press for Screeching Weasel and listened through most of the catalog of that band, yeah, it's the real thing. And as we discussed, even in Blackouts, is that much more musically adventurous, that much more interesting. And it seems bizarre, of course, that somebody who directs plays, who's a writer, who's written whole novels, was not actually a lyricist, a full-on songwriter in his most famous band. Again, to learn more about him, check out johnjugheadpearson.com, and hopefully you'll hear more of him on The Partially Examined Life. He's tentatively going to come on our next Aesthetics episode. I will announce that when it happens. I sure hope you go to nakedlyexaminemusic.com and check out my other interviews. There are many cool ones coming up. Next is going to be Annie Haslam from Renaissance, a classic 70s art rock band. Beautiful, beautiful voice. Now, if you enjoy this, I am asking two things of you. One is to go to the iTunes store and leave a nice rating and review. And second, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Sign up for even a tiny donation to make your love of this podcast known. Thank you so much for listening. And for your interest in these wonderful artists that I interview, please keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Hintzenmeyer signing off.